Thank you, Williams. Uh, that song, whether or not you knew it, does actually come into play a little bit uh, as we get back into the book of Habakkuk. And like I said last week, uh, we will be just in Habakkuk. So we were in Habakkuk 1 last week. It should come as no surprise to you that now we're in Habakkuk 2 this week. And we're going to be starting in verse 2. Now as for um, the scripture reading difference there, uh, I don't want you to blame the wrong people. That's my fault. Uh, I'm usually very bad at getting information to Norma and Greg on a good week. So put me in a different state on vacation, and I'm even worse. Uh, So that was the best that they could do with the fact that I texted them at like 8.15 this morning with the information that they needed. So again, that's my fault. That is not on anybody else. But uh, I did get to enjoy a week of vacation with my family up at Word of Life. I still have the wristband on. Uh, It's nice to be back up there, see everybody. We got to spend time with my family. Uh, Many, well, two of Kirsten's sisters are up there. We got to reconnect with uh, old friends. It It was a blessing to us very much. And the Lord kept us safe on the drive back. Uh, especially when I was very tired at the very beginning and was struggling sometimes to keep my eyes open. Uh, The Lord did get us back safe and sound. And I was able to, uh, during vacation, work on messages. So this is not off the cuff. Uh, This is not on the fly. This is prepared, and I was able to prepare it. So last week, uh, we were in Habakkuk 1. And we introduced ourselves to the man Habakkuk and to the book Habakkuk. And the book opens up with Habakkuk's first complaint. Why does God let evil go unpunished? That is Habakkuk's concern. We saw in his opening address, verses 2 to 4 of Habakkuk 1, the question of how long. A righteous man, a prophet of God, is surrounded by a continually corrupt and ever-increasingly evil society, and he calls out to God, how long before you decide to do something? And the Lord answers this faithful prophet, this righteous prophet, and he tells him, I am going to do something, and you're going to see it in your days. I'm going to punish the evil of Judah with Babylon. The Babylonians are going to come, and they are going to punish Judah for their sins. And as we saw last week, This sends our prophet into confusion because his theology is really good. He knows that God is holy. He knows that God is pure. So how can God decide to use Babylon as his tool of judgment when they are worse than Judah? And when we left our prophet, he was standing on the rampart, keeping watch to see how God was going to respond to him, how God was going to counter his arguments. And God answers a second time. And that is what we will read in Habakkuk 2. Now what we're going to see is that the Lord's judgment of evil comes exactly when he plans. And the righteous trust in his plan and his timing. The Lord's judgment of evil comes exactly when he plans. It's never too early and it's never too late. And the righteous trust his plan and his timing. So the Lord responds. It begins in verse 2, and that's where we're going to start because we read verse 1 last week. Then the Lord answered me and said, 
record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. The Lord opens his reply to his prophet by giving him a very specific command. Write this down. Write this down on something that is one easy to read and easy to carry. Because this message is going to go forth. And this message is for the appointed time. So all that we're going to read is not going to happen the day that Habakkuk gets it. It is for the appointed time. But it hastens and will not fail. This word hastens, uh, the word that you could use there is literally pants. The illustration that this word gives is that of a runner who makes it to their destination to give their message. Before we had instant messaging, uh, we had letters. And before we had letters that could be carried by mail, we had people who took scrolls and ran. That was their job. You were a runner. And uh, the most famous case I can think of this is the runner who arrived to Marathon to proclaim victory. He ran 26 miles proclaimed victory and collapsed and died because he had run the 26 miles. That's where we get our marathon from, that Greek account. So the idea here is that this message is a runner and the message that it is speaking is rushing, is going towards the appointed time and when it gets there, all of the stuff is going to happen. Kind of like someone who's panting and breathing for air, being like, okay, one second. Ugh. This is really important. Okay, this is, this is the message of the Lord. Just trying to get it out as fast as he can. That's what this message is doing, and it will not fail. Another word you could use for fail is lie. So this vision, this message from God, runs towards its appointed time, and it is a message of truth. It will be accomplished. Everything that we're about to read is going to happen right when God wants it to happen. And it is going to happen exactly how God says it. Because the message does not fail. And the message is for the appointed time. So this message begins in verse 4, technically. Because verses 2 and 3 is more a command for Habakkuk on what to do. Verse 4. We're going to read verses 4 and 5 first. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. The Lord, in the beginning of his message, introduces us to two individuals. There is the righteous, and there is the proud one, or the haughty one. Now, we're going to start with the proud one because most of this message is towards the proud one. Uh, in the specific context, this proud one is Babylon, and you can even get more specific, it's Babylon's king. So this proud one, this haughty one, his soul is not right within him. Uh, your translation may say upright within him. Or it may have the word crooked. This word right means in accordance with an accepted standard. That, that it is right according to an accepted standard. For God, his accepted standard is his law, is his word. 
So the proud one's soul is not in line with the word of God. In other, one, in other words, the proud one lives a life of disobedience to God's word. He does not obey God's word. The proud man, being Babylon and Babylon's king, his soul is not right within him. Additionally, he is betrayed by his wine. That's what we see in verse 5. In his drunken stupor, he does not stay at home. This phrase is used elsewhere, and I will read to you the verse briefly. It's in 2 Kings, if you want to flip there. 2 Kings 14, verse 10. We see another king who did not want to stay at home. We're just going to read verse 10. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has become proud. This is very similar to what we're going to see with Babylon. Enjoy your glory and stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you, even you, would fall and Judah with you? To give you the context of this verse, the king here, who will not stay at home, is the king Amaziah of Judah. And he wants to go to war with Israel. At this time, there we go. Uh, Israel and Judah are two separate nations. Judah had just had a victory over Edom. They've just increased their power, their influence, their wealth, and now they have some glory. And Amaziah is not staying at home and enjoying that glory, much like the Babylonians will not. He wants more glory. That appetite, that hunger is never ending. So he says to the king of Israel, Jehoash, come fight me. And King Jehoash sends him this back. Look, you've had your success. You've won your battle. Stay home and enjoy it. And Amaziah does not. And because of that, Amaziah is defeated by Israel. And Israel ends up doing a lot of damage to Judah and doing a lot of damage to Jerusalem. But Amaziah wouldn't stay at home because he was proud. He had just had a victory and he wanted more. And that is how the haughty one, Babylon, behaves back in Habakkuk 2. It is not enough for the proud man to stay at home and enjoy his glory. He must have more. Like Sheol, the grave, that always accepts more and more and never fills up, so is the proud man's appetite. So is his hunger. So is his pride and his greed. He needs to have more and more. And this drives him to sin. In the case of Babylon, it drives him towards other nations and he collects them. If you look just back one chapter in Habakkuk 1, this is how the prophet Habakkuk puts it. Verse 15 to 17, the Chaldeans bring them all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Babylon is hungry for more pride. Their pride and their greed is driving them out to commit these sins against other nations. They will not stay at home and it will be their downfall. But there's another man that the Lord brings up. It's, the message we're going to read, again, is largely towards the proud one, 
but it's not solely towards the proud one. There's also the righteous man. The righteous shall live by his faith. As I said last week, Habakkuk is both a righteous man and a representative of righteous people, of the faithful. And this message is clear. The righteous live by their faith. This word for faith means continuing trust in God and clinging to God's promises. It is perseverance. It is strong confidence or strong reliance. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a, I'm going to trust you with this one thing because I can't really handle it, and then I'm going to go handle everything else. And to give you a glimpse of how long this faith or how continuing this faith is, Habakkuk receives this message, uh, most likely sometime between 605 and 625 BC. What we're going to read is the punishment for Babylon. That doesn't happen until 539. Babylon first knocks on the door of Judah and Jerusalem in 605, and that is where we have the first exile. That is where people like Daniel get taken into Babylon. Come 586, Babylon knocks on the door a third time, and this time they're very upset to the point where they are going to burn Jerusalem to the ground. And they're going to take everything in it, and they're going to kill everyone in it because they're done with this rebellious city. Babylon does not get destroyed by the Medo-Persians until 539 BC. To put that in perspective, Habakkuk and his faith are going to be waiting for the message we're about to read to Babylon for somewhere between 70 to 80 years. That is what the Bible talks about when it talks about faith. It's not a one-day thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong thing. And the New Testament picks up on this and runs with it. The righteous shall live by his faith is a key, key teaching in the writings of Paul especially. And there are two fundamental truths for the New Testament Christian that come from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The first is that salvation is by faith alone. Turn with me to Romans 1. Verses 16 and 17. This is Paul opening up the book of Romans and revealing this truth that salvation is by faith alone. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And Paul directly quotes from Habakkuk 2 4 here. This is exactly where he's pulling the idea from. Verse 16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 is the basis for that. Basis for explaining the fundamental truth for Christians that you are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It is not faith in Jesus Christ and your works. It is not a works-based salvation. It is a, I am deciding to trust the person and work of Jesus Christ for the salvation from my sins. That what Jesus did on the cross by dying for me is enough to forgive me of my sins and right my relationship with God. That is all accepted on faith. That is what is required of the righteous to believe that what Jesus did was enough for them to be saved from their sins. But faith doesn't stop at salvation. And here's the second fundamental truth we see in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. This is what was read for our scripture reading. But I'm just going to read the last two verses. 
Hebrews 10, verses 38 and 39. Verse 38 opens up with Habakkuk 2.4. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The first fundamental truth from this, the righteous will live by faith, is that you are saved by your faith. That is how you live. The second fundamental truth is that your life is now a life of faith. It is marked by faith. It is marked by believing God's promises, believing God's word, believing what he says and trusting him. It is a life of that regardless of how the situation looks. That is what Habakkuk is called to. Remember, he's not going to see the destruction of Babylon for another 70 or 80 years. In fact, it's questionable if he actually does see it in his lifetime. But he lived by faith, trusting that God was going to do what he said he would. And that's something we'll see in Habakkuk 3. Also notice back in Habakkuk 2 that you have the proud one and the righteous one. The righteous one is marked by faith. The righteous one trusts God. The proud one does not. The proud one trusts himself. And woe to this proud one. The rest of Habakkuk 2, verses 6 to 20, are five woes. We are going to read the five woes for Babylon now in Habakkuk 2. And a woe has two parts. First, It's a declaration of sin or wrong. And second, it's a pronouncement of judgment for it. It's what you did wrong and the punishment that you're going to receive. And these five woes are split into two sections in Hebrew of ten lines. We don't really see it in English. But in Hebrew, it's ten lines, a split, ten lines. So the first three woes are in the first part. That's verses 6 to 14. And the last two woes are in the second part. That's verses 15 to 20. And the cutoff for these is marked by a line proclaiming the glory and greatness of the Lord. So we're going to read the first woe, verses 6 to 8. Again, this is towards the proud man. This is towards Babylon. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and its inhabitants. The first thing I want you to know about these woes, these are not something you would say at a funeral. This is not a lament over the death of an empire. These woes are not sad. They are taunt songs. They are things that you would sing to a defeated enemy to make fun of them. They involve mockery and insinuations. Literally, it's satire. It is mocking literature, and it is a riddle or a perplexing saying or question that these are comprised of. The point of this mocking literature, the point of these woes, these taunt songs, is to ridicule Babylon for being too stupid to realize the truth. That is what God is doing. He is making fun of Babylon because they are too dumb to realize what they've actually done. And that is what we're going to see 
in all of these woes. This first woe, woe number one, declares the wrong of Babylon's greed. And the punishment is that Babylon will be plundered. The Lord mocks Babylon's greed because Babylon is not actually wealthy. They have made themselves rich with loans. Uh, My wife and I will hopefully be getting a house on Tuesday. I'm going to be taking a very large loan for that. Just because I have accepted the loan doesn't mean I'm a very wealthy man. It means I'm a man in debt. Uh, If you take a million-dollar loan, you're not a wealthy man. You're a man in debt. That is what God is getting across here to Babylon. That all of the stuff that they have taken from the other nations, their gold, their silver, their precious things, they're going to have to pay up for that. It's on loan. And Babylon doesn't realize this. Babylon thinks they're rich. And God is letting them know, you're not. It's all on loan. And the creditors will come suddenly to collect. This word creditors can literally be translated those who bite you. And if you've ever dealt with a company that does loans, maybe you, can, uh, maybe you feel similar about that. And this word collect means to violently shake. Will not those who bite you rise up suddenly and those who violently shake you awaken? Babylon will become plunder to its creditors suddenly because Babylon has done violence and plundered the nation's around them, and they are now going to become plunder themselves. So this first taunt song, Babylon, instead of wealth, you've only collected loans, and you're too dumb to realize it. And these loans will be due, and you will be attacked and shaken and plundered for your plundering of nations. That's the first woe. Our second woe is in verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe number two declares the wrong of Babylon's pride. The first was greed. This is pride. And the pronouncement, the judgment against it is that all of their glorious buildings that they thought were proclaiming their glory are instead proclaiming their shame and their evil because of what they did to make them. King Nebuchadnezzar II was known as king for his massive and his expansive building projects. If you've ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, we don't actually know if they existed or not. But they are believed to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was under King Nebuchadnezzar that those were made. And they were designed to be gardens that would hang. It's a very appropriate name. uh, And display the beauty in the courtyard of the palace. And it was apparently so grand and so beautiful that it ranks in the top seven things ever made in the ancient world. It is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The city itself, Babylon, spanned the Euphrates River. So there was part of the city on one side, and there was part of the city on the other side with a big river between it. And the Euphrates is a massive river. To connect it, Babylon had a 1,200-foot bridge. That might not sound very impressive today, but at the time, that makes it the largest bridge of the ancient world. 
Second, or third, Babylon, had an, the city, had an outer wall and an inner wall. The outer wall was impressive. The inner wall was even more impressive. The inner wall was 21 feet wide. To, to give you an idea of what could move around on there, during ceremonies, uh, they would have two chariots next to each other run around the wall. That means it was wide enough for four horses to ride next to each other, to run next to each other around the entire wall. And we actually have a recreation of one of the gates. We found one during excavations. It's known as the Ishtar Gate, and it resides in a museum in Berlin, Germany. If you've ever seen a picture of a really big arch, it goes straight up and then it arches in the middle, and it's blue brick with gold dragons and gold lions, that is the Ishtar Gate. You can look it up uh, after we're done here. That was one of eight gates that this wall had. Beyond the walls, they had their temple. It was, no, it was called the Esagila. That means house whose head is raised high. And it was for their god Marduk, their king god, and it was covered in gold. Now that by itself is impressive as a construction progress project, but the temple was not on the ground. Remember, it's the house of he whose head is raised high. The temple stood on top of a ziggurat. For those of you who don't know what a ziggurat is, hopefully you know what the Egyptian pyramids are. Uh, a ziggurat is basically a pyramid, but instead of going straight slope, it's steps. And they had a ziggurat. It was called, and I'm going to butcher this because I don't speak ancient Babylonian, uh, it was called Etemenanki. And that is the house that is the foundation of heaven and earth. You can hear the pride in the names of their building projects. This building was 300 feet tall. It had seven steps. You can actually see a ziggurat this, to this day if you ever get into Iraq. Or you can look at pictures. Uh, it is known as the ziggurat of Ur. We don't have the whole thing. We just have the base. These were massive mud brick buildings. And for it to get 300 feet tall or 30 floors up, the base of it had to be gigantic. And then they put their golden temple to their God on top of that. This is the construction of Babylon. Both then and today, a clear display of power, a clear display of wealth was through construction. And Babylon was the greatest city in the world. And King Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to know it. But construction projects require a few things. Materials and labor. So Babylon, to solve their problem of not having enough materials and not having enough labor, came up with their solution, which the Lord calls evil gain. They plundered their neighbors for it. They destroyed other nations, killed other people, enslaved other people, so that they could build these things. The Babylonians placed themselves high above in hopes of being delivered from calamity. The haughty man's pride drove him to display his power and wealth. That is what happens with the king of Babylon. It demanded ever greater displays, which required ever more materials. And their solution was evil gain. It was a shameful thing. It was to cut off the nations around them. It was to steal. And the stone and the wood that they use to build their magnificent buildings cry out against their shame and their evil. Babylon, and this is basically a summary of the second woe, 
Your great buildings are not a testimony to your power and your wealth like you thought it was. It is a testimony to your evil and to your shame. To your shameful, evil actions. And then we get to the final woe of this section. Woe number three, verses 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Or your translation may have injustice. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's how we know this is the end of the first half because we have that line. Woe number three declares the wrong of Babylon's injustice and pronounces as punishment the destruction of their empire. It piggybacks off the second woe, but it's not just focusing on their great buildings. It's focusing on their entire empire. The cities are built with bloodshed. The towns are founded with injustice. And these empire builders who had their empire stretch and stretch and stretch as they consumed more and more land, more and more territory, more and more peoples, are toiling for fire and growing weary for nothing. Why? Because their empire is not going to last. Because God is going to reduce their empire to rubble, and he's going to use the Medo-Persians to do that. The proud man, when he builds these buildings and he makes these expansive empires, is trying to fill the world with his glory. He will not do it because his empire won't last. It will be fire and rubble and nothing. But there is one whose glory will fill the whole earth, and that is the Lord. Verse 14 is for us, the righteous. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is something the righteous can faithfully wait for. Because remember, this message is for the appointed time and it will not fail. There will come a day where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and we as the righteous can look forward to that day. So woe number three, Babylon, you work for nothing for none of what you build will remain. The world will not be filled with your glory, no matter how expansive your empire, but the world will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then we get into the fourth woe. Habakkuk 2, 15 to 17. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe number four declares the sin of Babylon's violence and pronounces that they will experience God's wrath. Babylon here is described literally uh, as somebody who picks out a victim, gets them drunk, spikes their drink so they can have their way with them. That is, that is literally how Babylon is being described, as someone who is going out of their way to violate their neighbors. This word venom can also be translated rage. 
So in reality, what it means is Babylon is pouring their rage out on their neighbors and they are violating them through it. But Babylon, who shamed other nations, will now be shamed instead. The cup in the Lord's right hand and utter disgrace or utter shame will come around to them. It will come full circle. Babylon made others drink of their rage. Now they will drink the Lord's cup. This phrase, the cup in the Lord's right hand, it shows up in different ways uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it always refers to the same thing, God's wrath. If you are going to drink the cup in the Lord's right hand, you are going to experience God's wrath. And I'll give you two passages where this phrase is used. If you flip back a few books to Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah has a message for many, 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 many nations. Jeremiah 25, verse 15 and 16, and then we're going to read verses 27 and 29. So Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16 to start. Verse 15. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Verse 27. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it will be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall surely drink. For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. And shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. If you flip into the New Testament, this cup is referred to by our Lord Jesus Christ. If you flip to Matthew 26... Verse 39, and you're probably very familiar with this passage because this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read this, verse 39 of Matthew 26. And he, that's Jesus, went a little beyond them, the disciples, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. By the way, Jesus had to drink the cup of the wrath so you wouldn't have to. As a Christian, you never face the cup in the Lord's right hand filled with wrath because Jesus took all of it for you. And it drove him to such a stressed spot that he bled or he sweated blood because he knew what that meant. This is what is waiting for Babylon. It is the wrath of God that God is going to pour out on them because Babylon poured out their wrath on other nations. And if you notice, they will also suffer utter shame. If you flip one book back from Habakkuk to Nahum, so you know, flip like a page or two, because Nahum is not a very long book. We can get a, a vivid description of what utter shame is. We're going to read verse 6 of Nahum chapter 3. 
This is God speaking to Assyria, not Babylon. But Assyria was destroyed before Babylon. Assyria was destroyed by the Babylonians, actually. Nahum 3, verse 6. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. That is a description of utter shame. I'm going to make you disgusting and I'm going to put you out to show everyone else. This is what waits for Babylon. They thought they were going to get glory because of their violating of their neighbors. And what they're going to get instead is utter shame. They are predatory. They are violent towards their neighbors. And Babylon, you made others drink of your rage. You violated others with your violence. And now the Lord will make you drink of his cup and utter shame will be upon you. It will come full circle. And then we get to our last woe for Babylon. Verses 18 to 20. And this will close out the chapter. Verse 18, Habakkuk 2. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Woe number five declares the wrong of Babylon's idolatry and pronounces that their idols are speechless, worthless hunks of wood and stone. Like many other messages against idolatry, the Lord opens it up with rhetorical questions. What profit is the idol? What good is a carved image or a graven image or a cast image to its maker? The Lord's message will not fail. The idols are complete lies. They are only lies. And beyond that, they are speechless. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake to a mute stone, arise. It is literally the idea of me going up to that chair and saying, hey, tell me what I'm supposed to do. Except I'm also going to cover that chair in gold because that somehow makes it better. Anytime the Lord speaks about idolatry, he makes it sound like the dumbest thing ever because it is the dumbest thing ever that people are talking to mute objects and asking them for guidance. That's your teacher, really. The Lord is mocking them. The Lord is making fun of them. And Babylon is probably the best understood polytheistic religion of the ancient world. Polytheistic means many gods. Uh, Babylonians had thousands of gods, but if you look at just the ones who had ceremonies practiced for them, they had about 20. Here's a list of a few. They had Anu, god of the heavens. They had Enlil, god of the earth. They had Ea, goddess of subterranean waters and craftsmen. They had Marduk, their king god. They had his son, Nabu, the god of writing and scribes. They had Shamash, the sun god. Sin, the moon god. Ishtar, the goddess of the morning and evening star. They had the god Adad, the god of storms. They had Ninurta, the god of war and hunting. And that's only like half of the ones that they actually practice for. And that is a very small percentage of the thousands that the Babylonians had. All of them are a lie. Nothing more than carved wood and cast metal. They are speechless before their makers because they are unable to speak whatsoever. But the Lord ends his message 
by showing the difference between himself and the idols of Babylon. In the dynamic of maid and maker, the maid is silent before the maker. In the case of the idols and the human beings, the idols are silent before their makers because they can't talk. They're speechless. They're just hunks of wood and stone and metal. But when it comes to God and all of creation, all of creation will be silent before the Lord in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple and all the earth will be silent before him. God in his holy temple is so glorious that all the world will know and be speechless before him. So woe to you, Babylon. You think your gods are anything and they are nothing. They are mute stone, mute wood, mute metal, and they are powerless. And one day, Babylon and all the world will be silent before the one true God. And all of this will come to pass because God has decreed it. The Lord's judgment of evil comes exactly when he plans, and the righteous trust in his plan and timing. God's message is very clear. Hopefully, I made this very clear. Uh, Babylon's going to be punished, horribly punished. It will be accomplished, it will not delay, and it will go exactly as God plans. In fact, all evil will be punished one day, exactly as God plans. All of the evil you see around yourself will one day be punished, whether in this life or the next. And the righteous have one job. The faithful followers of God, surrounded by evil, have one job. Faith. Trusting in the Lord. Constant confidence in the Lord and his promises, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how long they take. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and we live by faith in God's promises, in God's wonderful world. Babylon's many sins will be punished. Evil will be punished. Babylon's wealth is loans, and they will be plundered. Babylon's buildings scream out their shame and evil. Babylon's empire will become nothing but fire and rubble. Babylon will drink of the Lord's wrath. Babylon's idols are empty hunks of wood and metal incapable of speaking. And all of this will happen in the Lord's time, probably 70 to 80 years after Habakkuk gets this message. But there is another message, and this is really what I want to leave you with, because Babylon has long since passed away. But there are two verses in here that speak to the righteous and that are true to this day. The whole earth will be filled with the Lord's glory. For the earth, verse 14, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. One day, the earth is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. And one day, all of creation is going to stand in stunned silence of his glory. This is what God is pushing Habakkuk to remember and to look at. If you remember in Habakkuk 1 when we started, Habakkuk's eyes are not on God. Habakkuk's eyes are on the evil around him, the evil that surrounds him. And then when God answers, Habakkuk's eyes are now on the Babylonians. 
what God is doing through these answers is not just saying, don't worry, I get around to punishing evil right when I want to, and all evil will be punished perfectly according to my plan. He's also trying to, and he successfully does, bring Habakkuk's eyes off the evil around him and up to the Lord whose glory will fill the whole earth and who sits in his holy temple, heaven. He is trying to reorient Habakkuk's gaze off of the evil around him and on the judge, the creator of the ends of the earth, who is glorious and holy and pure. And it works. And that is something we're going to see in Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk has received a shift in focus from the problem to the problem solver. And we're going to see his response to that shift in Habakkuk chapter 3 next week. And it is one of the most beautiful psalms in all of Scripture, in my opinion. So that is what I want to leave you with. Faithful, righteous, dear Christian. Especially in a world that is tending towards the path of Judah into ever greater and greater sin until one day God is going to judge America. and He's going to judge it perfectly in his own time. It can be very easy to get distracted and to look at all the evil and to ask God, where are you? But the righteous faithfully trust in God's plan and they keep their gaze on him. And they look forward to those days when his promises will come true, whether that's today, tomorrow, 39 years, down the line, 70 to 80 years down the line, or well beyond our lifetime. That is what you and I are called to do. Live by your faith. Trust in God's word and his promises and focus on the problem solver, the judge of all evil, and not on the evil itself. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are one who punishes evil and you, want, you are one who has a plan in all things. I thank you that we can trust you as a holy God, as a righteous God, as a just God to punish evil in your time. Give us the patience we need to trust you. Help those of us who have put our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, to put our faith in your promises that you win. And that there will be an eternity to experience. There is no sin. There is no curse. There is no evil. Pull our eyes from the evil around us and put them on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to be faithful. Help us to live a life of faith in your word and in your promises. And to trust the problem solver to know exactly what to do about the problem. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.